and welcome to The Shipping Exchange, a brand new podcast that aims to explore the latest developments in the maritime industry, brought to you by the Honourable Company of Master Mariners and Maritime London, and presented by me, Graham Fisher. In today's episode, we're looking at seafarer training and opportunities. According to some experts, there is a skill shortage in the maritime industry, and research conducted by Maritime UK found that the UK maritime market was faring worse than its global counterparts, with proportionately fewer professional engineers than other industries. A report published by the Institute of Marine Engineering, Science and Technology claims that the apparent lack of growth in individuals graduating with maritime-related degrees is contributing to this increased skill gap. So, if this is the case, why is it so difficult for newly qualified navigation and engineering officers to get their first stamps? Ship operators and recruiters are looking for individuals with experience, but are rarely prepared to give applicants the opportunities they need to gain such experience. It's a continuous cycle of apply-decline, apply-decline. Despite this, the Department for Transport last year announced a double of funding for the SMART scheme to support the cost of training UK seafarers and to bring the scheme in line with aid provided by many other major maritime nations. In this episode, we will look at why some claim there is a skill shortage and whether the increase in SMART funding is a step forward or whether it will just result in more unemployed officers and what more can be done to support newly qualified officers in getting their first trip away. I'm joined today by three guests. Sir Alan Massey, former head of the Maritime Coast Guard Agency, Greg Livermore, Deck Officer Recruiter from Sea Mariner Recruitment, and Charlie Edwards, a newly qualified Deck Officer. So, Greg, do you think that there is a skill shortage in the maritime industry? At this present time, probably not. Um, The amount of officers out there, both Deck and Engine, who are struggling to find work at present is pretty high. Even those who are qualified and have got sea time behind them, they're still struggling to find work as well. And with additional officers coming through, if the smart funding is increased, then I think we'll just find a a lot of guys who are despondent through the the scheme and are sat at home twiddling their thumbs waiting for for opportunities which may never come to them. Yeah, a recent government uh, paper on smart funding, which we'll discuss slightly later on, uh, highlights that there are two credible candidates for every um, cadetship offered, so that proving that there is no skill shortage in the UK. Uh, Alan, wh- why do you think st- some people still think that there is a skill shortage? I think it's all about whether you take a tactical snapshot of the supply and demand situation today, uh, as opposed to doing what, for example, government has to do, which is to ask itself the question, are we seeding the ground successfully for the next 30 years, 20 years? Because you have to take a long-term view as well. And on that basis, I think there's no doubt, I've seen no disagreement with the projection that suggests that with international maritime trade to grow, grow quite strongly, then the demand for officers and ratings is going, to, is going to increase. In fact, we commissioned a study in 2016 by Oxford Economics, and their projection was that there'll be a year-on-year growth in demand for officers of about 3.2%. Now, that's quite stark. That says you actually double the numbers. Tactically, yeah, maybe maybe it's all balanced at the moment, and that's nice to hear. Um, But but actually, long-term, we have to put put these systems and methods in place to make sure we've got that supply meeting future demand. So, Charlie, you qualified recently. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Have you found it difficult getting a job or finding work? It's been a bit of a struggle. I've applied to a fair few companies, both uh, individual companies and also uh, agencies. The issue is that currently no one seems to um, 
want to employ newly qualified officers. Um, most of the uh, advertisements that I've seen, um, it's asking for thirds, but with a year's experience, or it's a, uh, potentially seconds, but then they have to have their chiefs. So obviously, that's not for me. It, yeah, it's a big struggle um, yeah. to find places that are applicable to myself. And do you find that it's a issue across the whole of the industry, like your peers, you feel that they've experienced the same problem? I'd say 50-50 so far. Uh, a few of my friends are fortunate to be guaranteed jobs through the companies that sponsored them through their cadetship. Others uh, were guaranteed, but then those officers have been rescinded. Um, so they're now looking for jobs um, when they weren't expected to. 50 are in jobs currently, 50 aren't, and are looking. So Greg, do you think that's a case of market economics, when jobs being rescinded or you know, initially being guaranteed work and then things don't quite turn out how they were expected to be, is that...? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Obviously, it depends on, on the, the market at the time with regards to the industry and how the shipping companies are performing and what their um, st- statistics are and what their tactics are moving forward. It might be a case that um, they're having to downsize or, or look elsewhere. Um, but generally, from our point of view as an agency, we're seeing those that are part of the tonnage tax scheme do their time, qualify, and then just left to, to fend for themselves, basically. Mm. So, Alan, what, what is the tonnage tax scheme? Put simply, it's, it's a regime that, that a government can introduce that gives that offers favourable tax incentives to a ship owner to actually come and base their strategic and, and operational headquarters in the UK. Uh, and they also have to make a training commitment under UK tonnage tax, which says, basically, if you, oh, ship owner, wants to bring your fleet into tonnage tax and benefit from what that offers... You have to, amongst other things, you have to offer one cadet training place for every 15 officers on your overall complement in the fleet. Uh, So that guarantees a a stream of of officer cadets going through our colleges, which is a very positive thing. Um, And actually, I think everybody, certainly in the UK, on on the industry side and on the government side, sees this as a totally positive thing. Is, Is it a positive thing because they pay less tax? Is it, is it solely, do companies take a sole view that they will train cadets for the financial benefit it brings them, but once the cadets are qualified, they have no real obligation? That, that, that is correct. I mean, the, there are tax incentives, and I can't go into the, into the detail of those, but effectively it's a different way of looking at corporation tax for the companies. Uh, it, it is an incentive for them to come to our flag. What we're hoping is that, or what government is hoping, is that by encouraging them to put officer cadets through training, that actually will grow the overall body of cadets to service the needs of the future. But you're absolutely right. I mean, once somebody has gone through basic training, there's no obligation for that company to employ that person. So, Jolly, it'd be interesting to get your opinion here. How can companies which have put cadets through training support their cadets once they have qualified? You know, some, some companies already have guaranteed work, but is there more that can be done? Should it, should it be perhaps made mandatory to give a first-time contract away as a qualified officer? Um, I think it would be certainly beneficial. A lot of the jobs that I've looked at need the experience, and it's always about getting your first stamp in your discharge book. So I think if the company that sponsors you then provides you with that first stamp as well, then I think it would be quite beneficial. Backside to that, though, if all in, if all companies did start doing that, then the first stamp would kind of be viewed as just additional training. It and it wouldn't lose value, yeah. Yeah, it, would, it wouldn't lose its, like credibility. So, I mean, companies have already trained you and they've already paid you a salary, so why, why should companies be expected to do it? For some companies that train their cadets in-house, um, I think it'd be quite beneficial because obviously they've had uh, a year's experience on the vessels uh, that they've worked on. 
for companies that farm their training out to uh, training establishments, um, I think less so because obviously um, they wouldn't have had the skill set that they've learned on board their own vessels. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a good way of supporting future cadets. So, Alan, do you think that these these pressures on perhaps coming from the newly qualified in the industry is going to be putting pressure on the tonnage tax in its in its current form? Do you think maybe we're we're in line for a change? I don't think so, actually, because uh, what, what what's happened and it's really useful. The the unions, uh, Nautilus, for example, and, and the industry have uh, have invited government to ha- look again at the whole smart support to maritime training scheme whereby government uh, agrees to fund up to 50% of, of, someone, of a cadet's training or a ratings training. Um, and that's what's delivered something called Smart Plus. And the whole aim of Smart Plus is to get companies now to, f- to, to hold on to a cadet through their first certificate of competency right through to their second uh, certificate of competency, which in, in, in your case, Charlie, would mean taking you up to, to mate, yes, uh, yeah. chief mate level. Now, that's a real incentive because, um, first of all, it gives the company guaranteed funding stream to actually bring people up to a quite high level of competence. Uh, but also for the individual, like Charlie, when he walks out with a mate's ticket, he's very, very employable. So it cuts in, in every direction. And government have agreed to double the amount of money they put into smart funding in, in order to make this work. Yeah, I think for, for our listeners, it's important to outline the progression in training and, and, and tickets, as they're called. So Charlie's want to provide a bit of an insight into the training, the tickets, what, what they are, what they mean, how long it takes? Uh, yeah, so to get my officer of the watch ticket, I did three years of training in college. Uh, one year of that, at minimum, was at sea. And then for that, you then take a series of exams, and then you have your final orals exam, which is uh, about an hour's worth of uh, questions and answers with a uh, master. Uh, uh, once you pass that, uh, you qualify as an officer of the watch. Then onwards to that, um, similar, you need uh, sea time uh, and you sit another set of exams and another orals exam to get your chief mates. And then again, up to the, the next uh, rank above that is uh, master or captain. So Alan, do you think that the, the current framework, current uh, orals and how they are conducted around the country, is it still fit for purpose? Oh, you mean in terms of actually examining people to make sure they yeah. can, they're, they're yeah. worthy of their qualifications? Absolutely, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's certainly... It's, it's fit for purpose, and we we have for a long time uh, resisted the urge to go from the current regime of written papers and oral examinations to a more sort of computer-based, multi-choice thing, because we believe that it's only when you really get eye to eye with somebody who's about to aspire to be the master of a vessel that you need, really want to get into the depth of understanding that that person has, because at the end of the day, they are very, very responsible jobs that we're asking them to do. So uh, in terms of have we got the balance about right, I think probably. Uh, we've certainly got some issues with dealing with the demand. For example, someone applying for an oral finds he has to wait several weeks before it can be made available, simply because we just don't have, or the MCA just doesn't have the examiners. But aside from that, I think the system is has probably proven itself fit for purpose. So just to link back to you, um, point about Smart Plus. Are we not going to just delay the inevitable then? The problem is just going to become higher up so chief officers will be in a similar position or similar problems that officers of the watches are facing at the moment? If, if you believe the pro- projections about future demand of, of seafarers and actually if you also look at the way the world fleet is growing, I mean notwithstanding the fact that um, maritime trade has sort of softened a bit, they're still building ships hand over fist, and uh, the, so the demand is, is, is going up. There's no, I don't think there's any doubt about that. It's a question of when it hits and when it becomes a problem. 
but I'm, I'm convinced that the government has got it right in terms of saying, look, we, we've, we're training all these people. It's suboptimal to a certain extent in that there are a lot of them getting qualified as officer watch but not getting jobs. Let's try and incentivize companies to keep them for longer because that leads to them having a career with that company probably for longer, but also, as I said earlier, makes it marketable, a much more marketable proposition to take someone like Charlie through, give him the sort of qualifications where he can jump between companies, uh, different parts of the world, different trades, uh, on the basis of a pretty advanced qualification. So, Greg, let's talk about the the, uh, the sectors of the industry, and from a recruitment perspective, do you see that there is perhaps more demand for officer of the watch, mates, masters, or from one area, whether that's offshore, deep sea, cruise? At the moment, we're seeing a number of senior roles come about, um, chief mate or master, on numerous sort of tonnage, from smaller tug coastal work to larger container vessels etc. The core business for Sea Mariner is UK coastal work, um, whether that's tugs, dredgers, ferries operating from the UK to, to France or Ireland, that's our main bread and butter at present. Um, we're not seeing too much deep sea, um, that all seems to, to be going to, to the foreign agencies for foreign crews. Is that a trend? Is that something which, which comes around quite you know every every couple of years with market cycles? Or In my 10 years of being at Sea Mariner, that's sort of been the case, but Coastal has started to pick up a lot more in the last couple of years than, yeah. than it has done previously, which is only good for, for the UK, or a lot of crew prefer to be close to home rather than having to spend months at sea. Yeah. So, Alan, why do you think that we have a greater demand for senior roles? Is it because of the way that the system is currently set up? Is it is it because of a, of a lack of support? Or is it very difficult for officers to get a job and decide to stay at sea for long periods of time to work their way up the ranks? I think there's all sorts of uh, complicated dynamics in, in, in all of this, which makes it quite difficult to, to actually have the supply and demand balance absolutely right at any one time. Let me give you an example. Um, with the, with the drop-off of North Sea oil exploration, we've lost a lot of billets that were available in ships for, in offshore vessels, which used to suck in quite a lot of British, um, British seafarers, for sure, UK seafarers. But conversely, the, the demand for people with the right licences to drive workboats that are servicing offshore wind farms has gone hugely up. I don't know whether Greg has witnessed that as well. Now, they're different type of licences. One's a boatmaster licence, uh, often, and and uh, and then it can also move into the deep sea qualification as well, but what's happening is there's there's a there's a dynamism about the market which is quite difficult to provide for, and so uh, you know it's, it's quite difficult to say that now and always there'll be a demand for more senior than than junior. It depends it depends so much on what the market's doing. Yeah, yeah. At present, um, like say the the wind farm industry is absolutely booming. Um, whether that's the CTV is taking technicians and crew out to the turbines, yeah. whether that's survey vessels undertaking surveys yeah. before it all is all sort of built or being put into project. Um, like I say, the off- offshore side of things that had a massive crash a few years back. Okay, so let's ha- have a look at training then. Um, two aspects of it, I suppose. Firstly, Charlie, do you think that when you have um, come to searching for work? the recruiters that you um, are getting in touch with and they have this uh, level of experience which they want, do you think they perhaps don't have a proper understanding of how much training you've already been through to get to the point that you're at? I mean, I haven't had too much uh, encounter with recruiters at the uh, present moment. A lot of them are requiring 
especially for the jobs that I like, DP experience, which is, well, it's impossible to get as a cadet um, and as a newly qualified officer. Uh, yeah, a lot of the uh, job ad advertisements aren't catering to the experience that newly qualified officers have. But that's a case of the market, though. That's a case of where the demand is. Yeah. If, yeah, if the quality of the officers can't meet the demand, then it's well, the accolades. It's, uh, well, I'd also like to, to throw in there... Um, Obviously, sometimes it's not actually the recruiters themselves who are, who are um, putting these criteria in for the jobs. Um, it's the, the actual shipping company or the owners themselves who come to us. Um, so we have to abide by the criteria which they're, they're stipulating. However, if we believe the person or the persons we're speaking with have the ability and the skill set to undertake that job in a competent manner and will be valuable for that client, we'll, or CMAR in any way, will push that person forward. So when we look at what shipping organisations want from um, possible candidates or from their crews, and you know Charlie linking back to the fact that there are certain courses, there are certain certificates that you don't have, is that a case that the, the current system of training, it, it, it's not dynamic enough, it doesn't cover enough areas um, to best prepare um, seafarers for work at sea? Alan? I, I suspect this is much more a case of if you, if you have the option of taking a raw recruit who's actually passed his college exams, passed his basic qualification, but has no experience, and you've got the choice between either him or her uh, and somebody who's actually had a couple of years already serving, I'm pretty sure nine, nine times out of ten you'd tend to go for the experienced person and not, not take the, 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 the risk, so to speak, mm. of, of someone... They're certainly trained, but maybe unschooled, if you like, in, in the realities of life at sea. And I can't help thinking that we can't be the only industry in the world that suffers from that, where you know, new, newly apprenticed people or people straight out of college often suffer in comparison to those who can already show on their CVs a bit more sort of life experience. So, Greg, what, what, what would you say to you know, organisations, companies? What are the benefits to giving a newly qualified officer a chance, or choosing a newly qualified officer rather than someone who perhaps has experience? What a newly qualified officer has um, on their side is that they're keen and eager to push their career forward. What we've found is that once we've got a newly qualified officer into a new role, they've been able to adapt to the role to the company standards. They've been able to be trained to what the company want themselves, um, whereas they're not coming in and saying, actually, I've done that different on a, on a different vessel. That's they can actually be moulded. Um, so we have found that works well with a lot of companies all depends on the client and what they're hoping to, to achieve really and and trying to make the awareness um, increase the awareness that these new guys and girls coming through they're not going to hamper operations if anything a little bit of training in the first instance just to show them the ropes to how their vessel operates but then long term they've potentially got somebody who can go from rank to rank and stay with them for, for a foreseeable future. So Charlie, when you think about the training and then you think about your sea time, particularly with technological advances, there is enough emphasis on things like ECDIS ashore. Do you feel like you're getting enough training um, in comparison to what the industry and the vessel's capabilities are today? Not particularly, I don't think. Yeah, most of my learning was at sea. So for your first sea phase, uh, which happens after uh, phase one, uh, you go onto the vessel and you, yeah, you do not understand how to use the ECDIS. So I think um, training may need to be uh, reshuffled slightly to prepare the cadet um, uh, in the first phase when they first join so that when they join their first vessel 
they are aware of the stuff that is that goes on board um, so they can fully um, make use of the time that they're on board rather than expecting officers on the bridge who also have a full-time job to train them uh, alongside. Yeah. So Alan, do you think the MCA is being dynamic enough in changing the way which training is done, adapting to new technologies, or is it perhaps being a little bit stuck in the past, or with the emphasis on, you know, Glasgow College, for example, we have a statistic which 100 hours of celestial navigation and, and paper chart work, but only 40 hours of ECDIS. Does that need to change in the industry? Government and the MCA need to try and uh, keep, keep up with the times. That's, that's definitely the case. But, but you almost have to go one step back as well. Um, Charlie's point about using electronic um, navigation system is, is, is quite a good one, but the problem is not with the basic training that he received in his college. It's the fact that there are no set standards for the way that a, an ECDIS system on ship A works as opposed to the one on ship B. There are all sorts of different configurations, different instrumentation. To an extent, it, you know, it's like you do your basic pilot training for if you want to be an aviator, then you have to convert to the particular type of aircraft you're going to be flying. There's, there's a bit of that about ECDIS because there's so many different options on the market. Yeah, I agree, but I think it's just doing that basic then allows you to adapt on board. So in your first phase, yeah. if you have the basic understanding to be able to just plot a route, yeah. being able to look at the uh, ECDIS and see, like, understand what it's actually telling you, I think would be greatly beneficial for someone going onto their first ship and being able to see it. Because we get trained in paper charts, we do that a lot in phase one, but yeah, we do not touch ECDIS. So. We, we should certainly give people grounding in the principles, mm -hmm. uh, and, and then it comes down to the application of specific bits of kit that they have to work with on their ship. So when you say specific kit, we're talking about type-specific kit, so mm -hmm. maybe those manufacturers need to be involved in the conversation of, of it being involved in, in the changing of the way which we were trained. Yeah, yeah, the, the, there's probably space, there's probably room for some better alignment between the equipment manufacturers, the ship owners, the training establishments to try and raise raise the overall sort of level of competence but that, that's it's a tricky area and and um i think i think the, the the mca's role in all of this is to try to try to determine what is the required standard set by international regulations for this sort of training what is the proposed training package that college a and college b are offering do they meet and where they do where they do meet then they get mca approval to carry out these these courses and then we will examine and then certify the officers um, there's a whole plethora of stuff that sits under that in terms of detail. And certainly ECDIS and the question of satellite navigation, also the use of simulators in training. These are all things that are being considered all the time. Um, but, you know, we have to be careful not to keep jumping, changing direction, because otherwise that tends to invalidate certification that's been passed out earlier. So we have to be quite careful about it. One of the... another certification issue that we see um, from an agency point of view is some of these newly qualified officers are coming out of their cadetships with only security awareness and others are having designated security duties. We're seeing a rise in jobs where officer watches will require designated security duties as a minimum to be able to be considered for those roles. So I don't know whether it is actually included in cadetships these days or whether it's an additional qualification that should be included within the training. It's an interesting point because I, I, when I met Charlie, um, I went to Fleetwood Nautical and Charlie's at Warsash and despite doing the same um, COC at the end our training was very different and there were some short courses I did but Charlie didn't and vice versa. 
But, but where do you think that pressure is going to come from then? Who will lead the way in making sure that the IMO internationally changes training for seafarers? There's a plethora of different interested parties. Um, you can take the trades unions on, on the one hand, who, who have a very important role in, in this thing, you, you, in this whole business. You've got the maritime colleges themselves, who are in a competitive market. They, they, they want to attract cadets to them rather than to other uh, rather than them going to other colleges. Um, there's the regulator's point of view. Where does this where does this fit in the hierarchy of regulatory requirements? There's the Merchant Navy Training Board in the UK that actually sits and assesses and puts together training packages and proposes how, how, do, we, how do we now keep up with innovation X by bringing in a sort of training package Y? How will that work? So there are a lot of interested parties who do come together actually and debate, debate this, this whole issue and try to improve and make, make the supply absolutely fitting to the demand. Mm. Are they um, simply UK interested parties? Is no. They, no. Well, no. Uh, clearly, clearly the, the UK has a focus on what, what is happening in UK colleges and, and under MCA guidance in terms of, of the regulatory. But it's, it's a worldwide issue because fundamentally the, the, the standards of training and certification of watchkeepers, the STCW regulation, is an international one. And, and if it weren't an international one, then you could never give somebody a job from a different nation who'd studied in a different college on one of your ships. So it, we have to... We have to bear in mind not just what the UK market wants, but also what the global demand is like, and that means going back to IMO standards. So let's have a look at the expectations then of officers. Greg, do you think that particularly British seafarers, um, with you know the cost of living in the UK, do we perhaps expect too much of from employment and packages and, and, and benefits and bonuses, etc.? I suppose so. From from our role, a lot of the jobs that we see are just short notice, temporary contracts. We, we don't see too many permanent roles. Um, but when they do come in, again, it's it's a split between different companies. You've got some who will offer all these packages, healthcare, etc., pensions, um, when you've got others, it'll just literally just give you a wage and, and a pension. But, but overall, I think that the, the British seafarer is obviously very valuable and companies do believe in them and will treat the contracts which are offered along the same lines as, as that to, to be able to keep them on. Alan, from your view from the MCA and the training which we do go through, is it justifiable that uh, British seafarers uh, would earn more at sea because of the training which we've gone through? Are we really a world leader still in, in, in the training which is provided to us? I think people have reasonably high respect for the way that UK trains and then career manages um, UK seafarers. It does come at a cost, there's no doubt about that. If well-qualified officers are available at a cheaper price, then which ship owner wouldn't, so wouldn't be tempted yeah, course, to go yeah. that way? You say it's a global market and, and SCCW is you know, international, so are we perhaps in the UK being slightly naive that if we a British seafarer is uh, equally as qualified as a seafarer from Another nationality? Are we are we being naive and, and tricking ourselves into thinking some some believing that we are worth more when it's simply not true? Well, uh, I, I would just go and, and look at the stats, the statistics. Um, the demand for for uh, UK certificated officers is actually quite high, um, and we've had a steady a steady sort of number of UK certificated officers and ratings working at sea um, in 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 commercial shipping in fishing. Uh, in super yachts, there's a there's a very high demand for UK seafarers in the super yacht industry. So something must be right, because if people kept saying that you know I can't afford a UK seafarer, so I'm going to buy one with the same ticket from a different country, then it wouldn't look like that at all. 
Uh, we have got to be careful not to price ourselves out of the market, that's for sure. Bearing in mind, of course, that no ship owner is, is going to want to take risk of, of an accident caused through someone who's perhaps inappropriately or insufficiently qualified. So there's, there's something about a kite mark in there, but I, I wouldn't want to be in any sense arrogant here. There, there, are some there are lots of extremely good training providers in other countries. So Greg, when you look at the salary which British officers um, demand, and then you have a benchmark against our peers, shall we say in Europe, so big providers in Poland and France, is, is the salary expectation over there the same? Is it, is it far cheaper, which is why perhaps people would be more inclined to choose it? Historically, um, Eastern European nationalities were seen to be cheaper. Over the years, skill sets have, have been um, identified that, in fact, like Sir Alan just said, that they're just as competent as, as British seafarers, and as such, they've pushed their rates up. So at this present time, I'd probably say that all European nationalities are probably pushing on a, a par with regards to, to salaries and, and day rates. Well, there's a good legislative reason for that, of course, and, and that is that we, we, we do have the Equality Act in UK, and, and uh, the version of that, that that exists for EU nations is, is um, just as onerous for other EU countries as well, in terms of paying uh, people the same if they come from EEA countries. So, to an extent, there's n not much discretion from companies there at all. It's when you go more worldwide that you see the greater disparity where people are not under that, uh, that, that European regime. So let's have a look at smart funding. So, Sir Alan, what, what is uh, smart funding? Smart funding is the government's um, scheme. It's, it stands for Support to Maritime Training, SMART. It's the government's scheme for helping shipping companies to pay for the cost of training officers and cadets to How work at sea. cost? Well, the average cost of a of a three-year cadetship, uh, I'm told, uh, at the last count, was about £59,000, so it's not that cheap. SMART uh, will cover up to 50% of that cost, so that, that's a, a fairly strong relief for, for those who have to fund, fund it. And the reason that SMART was brought in was precisely to encourage uh, shipping companies to take on cadets or to hire ratings and put them through training uh, so that we would furnish this requirement of... of, of of meeting a demand with an adequate supply of seafarers. Yeah, it's an interesting point with the adequate supply. In, in, this, um, in this article from the most recent Nautilus Telegraph, um, there's quite an interesting point in which companies might find it difficult to get more seafarers and cadets into the system and recruited. So we've seen funding double um, from 15 to 30 million, but it's great that funding has perhaps doubled, but on one side of it, are we going to have those space, empty spaces? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And actually, just, just to, to be perfectly correct on this one, uh, at the moment, the smart funding sits at 15 million. It is it, the government's undertaken to double that over the course of seven years, so it's a ramping up to 30 million. Because uh, government also understands that you can't suddenly blitz all the colleges and blitz all the fleets with a demand for double the amount of cadets going through. So it's a gradual, stepped-up thing. And, and where the pressure will come is... Potentially in training colleges, have they got the, the berths in training colleges? And we are assured they have. But more to the point, are there training berths at sea? Because a cadet's training or a, a ratings conversion training requires some sea time. If there's no decent jobs at sea with, with cabins to give these, these young officers, then that's where, that's where the bottleneck's going to be. So we've got to be gradual about it. But there's every confidence uh, expressed by the shipping companies and the unions, I thought, as well, 
that, that there's a demand. Yeah. So Charlie, you mentioned earlier about 50-50. 50% of your cohort have jobs, 50% don't. So would you think that more cadets coming through the system is a good thing or potentially that number of unemployed will just simply increase? Unless, yeah, there are more jobs available then you're going to see more people unemployed. As Sir Alan said, trade is increasing and so hopefully that will then mean that fleets increase as well and so as the slow ramp up occurs then the increased number of uh, newly qualified officers will fill the gap. Um, however, I guess it is a balancing game whether there's enough officers to fill the uh, increased fleet size or if the fleet sizes don't increase then we're going to have more officers uh, sitting at home waiting for a job. Can I, can I pick that one up again? Yeah, of course. Um, so the government's now signed up to Smart 2 and, and just to be clear, Smart 1, which was the original scheme, sorry not Smart 2, Smart Plus, Smart 1, the original scheme, was to take a cadet through to his first certificate of competence, which is Officer of the Watch, and then unleash him into the market. As Charlie says, he reckons 50% 50, 50 don't get jobs straight away. Under Smart Plus, the government wants 600 cadets to start and stay with the Smart 1 scheme, but the other 600 from the annual 1,200 intake that we're anticipating, the government's anticipating, that second cohort of 600 goes through the Smart Plus scheme right through to chief mate's qualification. So those 600 won't be looking for jobs at the same level that Charlie is. So I, if, if the system works as it's planned to work by the time it's matured after six or seven years, then ideally you, you'd get 600 or so. It always attenuates because people drop out, don't they? But let's say 600 of Charlie's first certificate of competence looking for jobs, but the other 600 will already be chief mates, much more marketable, and already in, well embarked onto a seagoing career with whatever company. So, Greg, you think, you, do you think it's a, a welcome step forward, then, a step in the right direction? I believe so. If it, if it um, increases the, the qualifications which you can obtain from, from the get-go, then, yeah, obviously, I think everyone would welcome the, the opportunity. Once they have, obviously, obtained their Chief Mates ticket, yes, they are, again, more employable. Um, a lot of the jobs that we do see, um, clients wanting second mates to hold their Chief Mates tickets as a minimum, or even their masters, so I think it will benefit everyone as long as it, the scheme does work correctly as it's forecast. And it's made a good start, if I may. Um, this year, which is the start of the whole Smart Plus initiative, um, we've met the target for, for, for extra cadets, so instead of the 750-odd that we have been typically starting with at the beginning of every year, we've got 870 starting. So that's great news, that really yeah. is great news. So as a final thought, Ben, a career at sea is not necessarily a career at sea for life, but it is a career in the maritime industry for life. So, Greg, individuals might be struggling, but are there other options, other avenues that they can take in the maritime industry to remain current? Obviously, their, their skill set can be transferable to a shoreside role, um, whether that's in um, sort of recruitment or HR within a shipping company themselves, or along other avenues with regards to surveyors or insurances etc I'm sure their 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 skill set can be utilized within a shoreside role without any issues so Charlie from your sort of job hunt that you've been on have mm -hmm. you found that perhaps jobs ashore in the maritime industry that are as equally rewarding and um, valuable and, and a step in the right direction rather than going back to sea I haven't really looked down that avenue because I greatly prefer a career at sea currently. Uh, however, I do know friends who are 
so scared that they won't get a job at sea that they are looking down the shoreside avenue. They'd like to go to sea but they don't think that they'll be able to get a job at sea so they're looking at jobs at the MCA etc. Should it be fear-based though? Should it not be viewed perhaps as a, an exciting opportunity to go into, I don't know, whether that's accident investigation, underwriting, brokering, so many opportunities? I agree. Um, I mean, in 10 years' time, I potentially will go down that avenue, but I think having trained for three years to go to sea, um, I think it'd be quite nice to actually spend some time at sea before coming back ashore. Um, I'm, with, I'm completely with Charlie here, even though I'm a, just six generations removed from him. Um, when you're a cadet, you want to be at sea. You, you've been attracted by this great excitement, this great adventure, and we have been talking about a lot of negatives here. The positives, seagoing career is ace. I mean, I'd go to sea again tomorrow. I'm not going to tell my partner this. i go again to, to sea tomorrow. Uh, it is exciting. It's, it, it's demanding. It's the sort of thing that young people and people sort of who want a, an absorbing, responsible career. It is very, very attractive. And so I'm completely with Charlie saying he wants to be at sea. Of course, the other, the other side of the coin, and another thing that I think makes a career at sea quite attractive, is there is a big, big market out there for people who come from sea after several years and want to get stuck into something that's, that's valuable, that adds all of the value they've picked up from their seagoing in a really meaningful job. And it could be something like accident investigation, working for the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, working for in, in insurance, finance, shipbroking, all of these things where actually a strong background at sea is pretty pretty much necessary. Look at the world there, there's some great opportunities and you have to look at it as a whole continuum. Yeah, of course, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, every industry has problems, every industry, like you said, when, when you're newly qualified, there is perhaps that law period, but I'm sure we can all agree that it's, it is a fantastic career, hugely rewarding and a career for life, if you want to stick at it. Yeah, definitely. For anyone listening who's uh, thinking of uh, <laughs> having a career at sea, definitely do it, because it's well worth it. Thank you for listening to The Shipping Exchange. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, it would be great if you could leave us a comment and subscribe for future episodes. You can also find us across all of social media and at our website, and the links can be found below in the bio. And we hope that you can join us again soon.